0: If you have your bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the gospel of John. We have been here now for a few weeks. We have just made it out of the prologue, and so we're going to beginning we're going to begin this morning with verse 19 of chapter 1 as John begins to tell us the story of what happens in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant, the word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up our eyes. Open our eyes that we might see Jesus, that we might see Him in all of His glory and splendor, in all of His grace and truth, and that seeing Jesus, we might have confidence, knowing that He has completed His work, a work to purchase for us redemption. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 19 begins a new section of John's Gospel. Previously, in the prologue, we were taken into the heavenly, eternal places where John spoke about the Word. Remember that it was not until nearly the end of the prologue, verse 17, that John even told us the name Jesus Christ. But now, we are brought back down to earth, to the here and now. And the gospel writer comes back to John the Baptist, the man that he spoke about in the parenthetical in verse 15. He's going to introduce us to John in more detail. But even that has as its purpose, introducing us to Jesus. Just who is this Jesus? Why is he so important? John the Apostle is about to tell us. And he starts with John the Baptist. He begins here first that we are introduced to John. John the Apostle starts in the middle of a story. You know, often we think of Mark as the gospel writer who's in a hurry. He's immediately going to one thing and immediately going to another. But the account of John the Baptist here is much more abbreviated than in any of the other three Gospels. In verse 19, Jesus just comes onto the scene. We don't, or excuse me, John just comes onto the scene. We don't know much about John. We aren't even told exactly what John is doing. And this is very different from the other Gospels. Matthew, for example, tells us that John was a preacher in the wilderness of Judea. He tells us that John's message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew tells us about John's strange clothing and of the odd food that he ate. And we get a sense of who John is when he begins his sermon by saying, You brood of vipers. That's not exactly what you expect from a preacher who's trying to connect with his congregation. Luke tells us even more. We read about John's parents and about the angel who foretold his birth. We read about John leaping in his mother's womb when Mary came. We read about John's birth and his father's prophecy after his birth. And Luke tells us much about John's ministry. Almost a whole chapter's worth in chapter 3. Even Mark, who is so quick to the point, gives us more of John's background. But not John the Apostle. No, at the point that this gospel picks up John the Baptist, John is already famous. To place in your minds where we are right now in the history of Jesus... John has already been preaching in the wilderness. He has already had large crowds come out to him. In fact, the baptism of Jesus has already happened. And after that, you may recall that Jesus went out in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. All of that is in the rearview mirror here when we meet John the Baptist. Religious leaders are so concerned about John that they send a delegation to find out just what he is really up to. You see this here in verse 19. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, by the Jews here, John likely has in mind the Jewish leaders, what is called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was kind of a combination of Presidency, Congress, Supreme Court, all rolled up into one. They were the only leaders of the Jews, of the Israelites. And they were a ruling council made up mostly of elite authorities. You may recall that they went by the name the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the politicians of the age. They were from wealthy families. They were elite intellectuals. But there were also active religious leaders that were a part of the Sanhedrin. They were called the Pharisees. And we know that they were a part of this delegation from verse 24. Now they had, been, they had been sent from the Pharisees. So we have a delegation of priests and Levites who were probably Sadducees. And also a delegation of Pharisees as well. We will see them throughout John's Gospel as they battle with Jesus. But the questions that they are about to ask do not come because John is obscure. If we look just at this text and don't have the background, we may think that they are coming and they see this odd man out in the wilderness and they say, you know, who are you? What's your name? That's not what's going on here. They want to figure out who John is. What they really want to do is find out If he's a threat? Or can he be controlled? And so they start with an open ended but loaded question Who are you? Now, at first glance, this seems very open ended, very innocent. It's something that we might ask each other out in the hall or out on the street Who are you? But we have to understand the context here for this question. You see, They're asking this question in an open-ended fashion because they don't want to plant any seed of an answer in John's mouth. Parents understand what I'm talking about. You know, when you ask your kids a question about what they've done, especially when you're pretty sure they're in trouble, you don't ask a specific question. You don't say something like, did you do such and such with so and so at such time? You ask a question more like, what did you do yesterday? Who were you with? And of course, as a child, you're left wondering, how much do they know? How much do I have to tell? How much can I I hold back? Right? It's general and vague to get as good of a response as you can possibly get. And that's their intention here with John. Because you see, the context of this meeting is that the Jews had returned from exile some time ago. But after their return, things had taken a turn for the worse. They had experienced persecution. The Greeks came into this area under Alexander the Great, and then after Alexander's death, the empire was divided in three, and a Greek general was put in charge of the area where the Jews lived. And eventually... The king of that area became a man known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And he persecuted the Jews and he desecrated the temple itself. It said that he had a pig, an unclean animal, slaughtered on the altar in the temple. And it was such an outrageous type of action that he did that the Jews rose up in rebellion. Hoping to throw off the foreign authority. And for a time they reigned, but eventually they were put back under subjection. And then after that, the Romans came. Now, the Romans were different from the Greeks. They were all about power, all about control. And the Jews hated that. You know, if the Greeks were the intellectuals of the ancient world, the Romans were, how do I put this? The engineers. You know, the Romans built roads that you can still drive on today in Europe. There are roads here in Houston that were built last year that I can't drive on because they haven't survived. The Romans brought water to desert areas through aqueducts. They were engineering marvels. But they were very practical and all they really cared about was peace and quiet and control. And they kept the Jews under their control. And this drove the Jews crazy. They hated being under authority. They hated not having self-rule. And so the Jews, at this time right now, were looking for a Savior. And by that, they wanted someone who would lead a revolt, a more successful revolt than before, and who would free them from the Romans. And so, when they ask John, who are you? They're really asking, are you the Christ? Are you the one who's going to kick the Romans out for us? Now, John understood this question, and he answered it very forcefully. Look at verse 20. He's very clear. He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Did you miss it? I'm confessing it. I'm not denying this. I'm confessing it again. I don't want anyone to think otherwise. I want to be very clear. I am not the Christ. Now, let's stop here for a moment. We could all take a lesson here. You are not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Now, what does that mean? I mean that you and I are not sufficient in ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves or fix others. The best thing you can do when someone comes to you is to point them to Jesus. Jesus is the one they need. Jesus is the one that can give them hope. Not that you are insignificant or you are worthless, but you are not the Christ. And that is who everyone, every sinner needs. So they move on to question number two. Well, what then? Are you Elijah? Now this would be the next best thing for them because the prophet Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament in in your Bibles, in chapter 4 verse 5 wrote, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so the Jews had that prophecy and in their minds what that meant was before the day of the Lord comes, before the Lord comes with His Christ, His Messiah, and cleans out the Holy Land, throws the Romans into the sea, before that happens, we'll know it's going to happen because Elijah's going to come first. Now, we have to remember that in your Bible, Malachi is very close to Matthew. There's probably one page in between it. But there are hundreds of years that pass with God being silent. God doesn't speak to His people. They're waiting on Him. That's why when the angel comes and declares the birth of Jesus Christ... It is so spectacular, not only because of who Jesus is, but because it is God speaking now again into the silence. And so their question to John is, is God on the move again? Is God coming to strike down our enemies? Because you see, that's what they were thinking. They wanted God to come because of what God could do for them. They didn't want God. They wanted Something from God. And their thinking is, if Elijah is on the scene, well then the Messiah is not that far behind, and freedom, and liberty. But John answers them in the negative again. And we have here the beginnings of an interesting pattern. Do you see, he answers the first question, I am not the Christ. And he answers the second question, I am not. Now, it is the exact same two words in both answers, except for it ends after those two Greek words in the second question. What I want you to see here is, is that John's acting a bit like a parent. You know, when children ask their parents the same question over and over again, parents tend to get shorter in their answers, don't they? The first time you get asked a question, you might answer and give, a host of reasons why you're not going to do something or not have something for dinner or not go on vacation or whatever it is. The second time that you ask the question, it gets abbreviated. And then if you're anything like me, by the third time, you pull out that great parental trump card, because I said so. Now, kids, when you hear about because I said so, do not ask again. There's no more asking after that. That's it. And so John is already starting to get a little bit tired of the questions. We'll see more in a minute. And, but his answer is pretty interesting because they ask him, Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Now why is that interesting? Because we know he is Elijah. What do I mean by that? Well, in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, Zechariah is told by the angel that his son, John, would go in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, says that John was, to those who would believe, the Elijah who was, is to come. So what's going on here? Is John wrong? Is Jesus wrong? have they just forgotten? What does John mean by saying no? I think what's happening here is John is being consistent in taking the emphasis off of himself. You see, the Jews expected a literal return of Elijah. You remember, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into heaven in the flaming chariot and the flaming horses. And The Greek translation of the Old Testament, you've heard me talk about it before, the Septuagint, actually translates that verse of Malachi 4, verse 5, in a wrong way. It says, Elijah the Tishbite will come. It refers to the Elijah that was born, a Tishbite, a very specific Elijah, Because that's what they expected. They expected Elijah himself to come back. But John says, no, 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 no. I'm not the one who's important here. Don't be worried about if I'm someone famous. No, I'm not that Elijah. Well, then they ask a third question. Are you the prophet? And if you look closely in your Bibles, the word prophet there is capitalized. And it should be. Because the prophet... Was one whom Moses foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses told Israel that God would raise up from among them a prophet, capital P, if you will, in whom he would put all of his words, God's words, and that they would hear the prophet. And so this prophet was one who was to come. And no one ever confused the prophet with even the most famous of prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Amos. None. Because he was a singular kind of prophet. An end times kind of prophet. Peter tells us that Jesus is that prophet. In Acts chapter 3 verse 22. He tells us that Jesus is the one whom God sent. With all of God's words. And that his people were to hear him. But once again. John answers. This time it's even shorter. No. It's one word. He's clearly getting tired of these priests and Levites and their assumptions of who he is. So then they ask, well we don't, you won't tell us who you are. Tell us what you're doing. Who are you? You know, we need to give an answer. We can't go back empty handed to the people who sent us. And obviously, you're out here, you're kind of a big deal, John. So tell us who you are then. All of these people have come out all this way to hear you and to be baptized. So tell us what's so important about you and why you are so popular. And John gives an answer that's biblical and humble. He says in verse 23, I am the voice of... Of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He's just a voice. He's no one important in particular. And he's a voice out in the wilderness. He's not even in a place that's important or special. But there's more. The voice that Isaiah describes as the one who prepares the way of the Lord. John is the voice that wants everyone to see the glory of the Lord. What he's saying essentially is, listen, you keep focusing on me. You need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. You need to be ready for the one who is coming. Well, then the Pharisees pick up on this answer in verse 24. Remember, the Pharisees are the theologians of the group. So they want to understand what John is saying. They say, well, if that's so, if you're just the voice, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then then why are you baptizing? What's going on here? Now, we might understand that question because in our church, in Christianity today, not just anyone baptizes. You have to have some authority. It's it's a part of the worship service of the church. It's, It's a sacrament that a minister of the gospel has been entrusted with to declare that entrance into the covenant of baptism. But that's not exactly what's going on here. You see, baptism in those days was very different. The baptism of John is different than Christian baptism. And baptisms that might happen in John's day were different than his baptism. Because in John's day, you would perhaps even often baptize yourself. You might conduct a ceremonial cleansing or a washing. Now, I know that this seems odd, and I don't want any young people to get any ideas about this. In John's day, people did not take a bath or a shower every day. What they did, though, was occasionally... They did a ritual cleansing. They would baptize themselves in order to perform a ritual or to be involved in worship or to encourage themselves in their holiness. But they would baptize themselves. They would wash themselves. And so what the Pharisees are saying is, John, what are you doing baptizing other people? You have no authority. You've told us you're not the Christ Elijah or the prophet. What is going on here? If If you're really no big deal, John, like you're saying, why are you doing something that is a big deal? And it's interesting that John answers the only way that John could. In verses 26 and 27. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What John says is, I'm just giving a sign. What I'm doing is pointing to Jesus. He says, there's one here that you don't know and the one that you're not even looking for who's important. And I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Now you have to understand the implications of that statement. Because in John's day, There were no paved roads, not even Roman roads. They were mostly made of dirt, compacted dirt. And when you walked along these roads in open foot sandals, your feet would get filthy. And so someone would have to wash your feet if you were important. A disciple would never wash the feet of their teacher. They could do every other kind of menial task. Run and get him food. Run and get him clothes. Lock the door to his house. Check and see with the neighbors. Do whatever as menial as possible, but not this. This was reserved for the lowest of the lowest slaves. So do you see what John's saying? I'm not even worthy to be the lowest slave In the presence of the one who's coming. Can you imagine that? Is that how you view the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I think sometimes, especially in America, especially because we are so wealthy, we are so proud, so put together, we kind of view Jesus as our buddy. As someone kind of like us. Well, more important than us, but how wide is the gap? John tells us how wide the gap is. That we're not fit to be his slaves. That should be our testimony. When someone wants to know why you are so put together, so happy, so hopeful, don't you dare tell them how great you are. Don't point them to yourself. Because you are not their hope. Point them to Jesus. It's because of what Jesus has done for you. That you are who you are. Well, then the next day comes, and after having been introduced to John, we are now introduced to Jesus. And you get the idea that the delegation here is frustrated. They wanted to know why John was such a big deal, and his answer was, I'm not. And then he puts this on display the next day in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this is the first time that we really see Jesus in this gospel. Before this, we are told about him. But we don't see him. Remember that John's gospel, unlike Matthew and Luke, does not have a birth narrative. And while Mark begins with Jesus in view at his baptism, John does not. So here at verse 29, Jesus' baptism has already occurred. So has the temptation. We're only now getting to see him. John the Baptist says one of the most memorable lines in all of the New Testament. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin." Of the world. Who is this Jesus? Who is the one that's so great that John keeps going on about? He is the Lamb of God. Now, now we hear that, and it's very familiar to us, because we hear it in the context of John 3.16, of the passion narratives of Jesus before His death and resurrection, and of Paul's focus upon Jesus' death and the cross. But to the world, that statement was revolutionary. You see, the Jews didn't want a lamb. What they wanted was the Lion of Judah to come in and get rid of the Romans and to put them on top and to give them power and authority. They weren't worried about their sins. They wanted the Messiah, the Messiah that they wanted to come and blow away those real sinners, the Romans. But John says they should have been looking for Him. Because you see, the Old Testament is filled with images of a lamb. And it's particular. The lamb was the sacrifice that God brought to make atonement for sin. We can go all the way back to Genesis 22, and Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Abraham brings Isaac up the mountain. And Isaac is not a dull boy. He looks at his father and he says, Father, the knife, the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And you remember what Abraham responds? God will provide Himself a sacrifice. And then, of course, the ram is caught in the thicket. But then we can move to the Passover and Exodus in Egypt. And how a lamb was slain for each family. And the blood put on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass by. Or we could think about even in John's day. From the days of the tabernacle till this is being written. In Israel, there was always a sacrifice daily of a lamb. Once in the morning, once in the evening. A lamb for the nation. And then, of course, Isaiah in his great prophecy tells us in Isaiah 53 that the suffering servant, the one who would come and make atonement, he would be as a lamb before the slaughter. So don't be confused here. This is not a cuddly, fluffy lamb. No. This is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And to take away means to lift up, to carry off and away, to take the burden of sin away forever. That's what the Lamb of God does. This is the culmination of everything that the Old Testament talked about. The Lamb of God is to be slain. To have His blood spilt as a sacrifice. As a sacrifice for whom? John tells us. The sin of the world. Now what does that mean? Is it that the whole world has their sins taken away? Well, we know it can't mean that because the Apostle John has just told us previously Not all received Jesus. And that only those who believed on Him could become the children of God. What John the Baptist is saying here is that Jesus is the only Lamb for the whole world. The whole world without distinction. Not just for the Jews, but for all the world. Jews and Gentiles alike And what good news, because brothers and sisters, that includes you and me. We have a lamb to atone for our sin. As you sit here today, know that the only solution to your sin is Jesus. There is no way to get rid of your guilt, your regret, your sorrow, and shame. Only the Lamb of God can take that away. And he can do that because he is God himself who died on a cross to bear the penalty for your sin. John says, behold! Will you look? Will you look to Jesus for hope and life? For salvation? and For freedom from sin? John the Baptist concludes by telling us his whole purpose is to bear witness. In verse 30, he reminds us that he told us he was pointing to another. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This is another one who is greater than John, who ranks before him and who came before him. Now, didn't he fully understand The prologue, I don't know. But we do know that he knew Jesus was no ordinary man. He is God. And John's baptism then, he tells us, is really all about Jesus. You know, when we read the story of John baptizing, we think about all the people that he baptized. We think about their need for repentance, which is like our own. We think about John. And how bold he was. And how unconventional he was. That's where our focus goes in John's baptism. But John actually says, no, no, no. It's actually all about Jesus. Look what he says. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. What purpose, John? That he might be revealed to Israel. You see, what John is saying is, all that he did was so that Israel and you and me could see Jesus. That's why he did it. And what he means, well, here's an interesting question. He says, I myself did not know him. He actually says it twice. And you want to say to yourself, John, what's up here? He's your cousin. You grew up with him. You know, your mother, his mother were friends. Leaping in the womb business, the whole How? What do you mean you don't know him? But you see, John is not saying, I don't even know him at all. I don't know who his name is. I don't know him from from Adam or Peter or John or Joe. No. What he's saying is, I didn't know the full significance of who he was until the baptism. How did John see who Jesus really was? It was in His baptism, right? Do you remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? John reminds us of part of it. He says, the Spirit descended upon Him. And then you remember that the Father said, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was at the baptism that Jesus' ministry was inaugurated, that He was set apart for that ministry, that He was declared to be the Son of God by the Father and the Spirit. That's what John means here. John says that when he saw and he heard that, he knew that Jesus was, look at verse 34, the Son of God. That's what John says. And that had to be publicly revealed to Israel and to you and me. The whole point of John's ministry was to point to Jesus. Because only Jesus can take away sin. Only Jesus is the Son of God. Only Jesus brings hope and peace. We have been introduced to John so that he can introduce us to Jesus. The real Jesus. The true Jesus. Not the Jesus that we think we want. Or the Jesus that we have made up in our head. No, the actual Son of God who came to earth and became a man to die on a cross and to rise again. That is the Jesus we need. That is the Jesus that you must believe in. Let's pray.